This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 132 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most revered sound mixers in movie history and also the person who has the most Oscar nominations without a win in Oscar history, the great Kevin O'Connell, who this year, for his work on Mel Gibson's war film Hacksaw Ridge, is nominated for the Best Sound Mixing Oscar for the 21st time, and could win for the first. O'Connell, who is 59, has been in the business for nearly 40 years, starting out as a junior technician on movies like The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then working his way up to a full-fledged re-recording mixer on movies like The Big Chill and Terms of Endearment, the latter of which brought him his first Oscar nomination 33 years ago. His other credits and nominations between Terms and Hacksaw include Dune, Silverado, Top Gun, Black Rain, Days of Thunder, A Few Good Men, Crimson Tide, Twister, The Rock, Con Air, The Mask of Zorro, Armageddon, The Patriot, Pearl Harbor, Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, Memoirs of a Geisha, Apocalypto, and Transformers. In 2016, O'Connell mixed the sound not only on Hacksaw, but also on Passengers, Ben-Hur, and Central Intelligence. Over the course of a conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, O'Connell and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how he wound up abandoning a career as a firefighter and following his mother into the world of sound, how sound mixing actually works and differs from sound editing, how he wound up in a 12-year partnership with another great sound mixer, Greg P. Russell, that yielded 12 nominations, what stands out most about some of the filmmakers with whom he has worked repeatedly, such as the late Tony Scott, Michael Bay, and Mel Gibson, why the current Oscar voting system doesn't really make sense and disadvantages artists of all sorts who do great work on movies that themselves are not necessarily Academy-friendly, and why, despite the roller coaster of emotions that comes with being nominated and losing so many times, O'Connell, a former member of the Academy's Board of Governors, strongly believes that it truly is an honor just to be nominated. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Kevin O'Connell, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin by asking on this podcast, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? And I know it's going to be an interesting answer with you. <laughs> Well, actually, I was born in Bethpage, town of Oyster Bay, Long Island, New York. We moved out here when I was just a kid. My parents worked in the film business. My dad was an accountant, and my mother was the secretary to the head of the sound department at 20th Century Fox. I grew up in the west end of the San Fernando Valley in the 60s. It was a great time to grow up. The west end of the San Fernando Valley was a, you know, re- relatively undeveloped at that time. All the schools were brand new. And it was a great environment to grow up in. So your mother, Skippy, you mentioned, was in this sound business. Well, my mother started at 20th Century Fox in like 1964, 1965, okay. when I was just a kid. So I used to go down to the set and visit like, you know, the Poseidon Adventure, the mm-hmm. Towering Inferno. I'd get to sit, go to the Daniel Boone set, the Batman set, you know, as a little kid. And I would actually, she would take me to the sound department where I would meet some of the mixers that uh, eventually I would end up mixing films with, which was a, a little bizarre. Now, how did she get into all of this? I think that's an important question here. Well, my dad was working at 20th Century Fox in accounting, and he one day when he was punching out, he saw on the bulletin board that they needed a secretary to the secretary of the sound department. And my dad thought it might be a great job for my mom, so he got her the interview and she got the job. So she was the secretary to the secretary, and eventually she moved up to the assistant head of the sound department. Wow. So... When you were growing up, you know, you mentioned you spent some time around this stuff, but was this what you imagined you would be doing with your life, or did you have other sort of specific dreams or ambitions? A lot of people don't want to do what their parents do. Well, I never thought about getting into the film business in any capacity. My, my lifelong goal was to be a firefighter. So when I was 18, I tested for the L.A. County Firefighter Brush Fire Division, And I got accepted, went through all the training, and spent a year fighting brush fires in Southern California, which, as you know, is a horrendous job. Yeah, I was going to say, what what appealed to you about that line of work? I was always a very avid outdoor guy, very physical, and just the idea of being a firefighter, to me, was just a thrill. And and I think that what they do is an incredible job, and sometimes it's a thankless job. And I like the idea of of, of helping people and, and saving lives when you can. Sure. So how did you go from the fireman trajectory to the soundman trajectory? That's a pretty big leap, I would think. Here's what happened to that. I was 18 years old. I just turned 19, actually. I had been out fighting brush fires somewhere up in Bouquet Canyon or something. It was like a three-day fire. And I came home, and I lived at home at the time, and my mother looked at me, and I had literally was beaten to a pulp because those fires kick your butt, and they're, they're very hard on you. And she said, I really wish that you'd consider a job down at the studio. And at the time, I was making $700 a month as a firefighter. And when I went down to the studio and asked around a little bit and checked it out, I found out that the apprentice wage would have been $500 a week for what I, for what I would be doing. And I thought, well, okay, I'm 19 years old. That sounds like a pretty cool deal. It didn't really appeal to me because it was sort of an indoor job, and I used to be outdoors. But in January of 1978, I finally said, okay, I'm going to go for this. And I got a job at Samuel Goldwyn Studios. Mm-hmm 
which was like the luckiest thing on the planet that could happen to me because it was the, you know, I got to work on, on some great films and not as a mixer, but in a capacity as a machine room operator or a recordist like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Grease, The Empire Strikes Back, Animal House. So I, I, I got to work in some great films. And, and once that happened, I was hooked. So you, you mentioned that this was at the Samuel Goldwyn Studios. Is that the job, though, was, was for Fox, but they worked out of Samuel Goldwyn? Or how did, it, how did that work? Uh, no, uh, okay. So here's how it worked back in yeah. the day. It was all, in order to get someone in the union, yeah. there was this thing called the books. And everyone had to be hired off the books before you could hire someone into the union. And the position that you usually started in was a machine room operator. So my mother, who was good friends with all the other sound directors in town, when it was time to get someone in, in, they wanted to hire someone, each sound company would hire someone to get them off the books so that there was no one on the books. And then when, when Don Rogers, who ran the Samuel Golden Studios at the time, called the union and said, I need a machine room operator, the, the gal said, there's no one on the books, so you can hire whoever you want. Well, that was a very strategically right. planned you know, offensive to get, right. to get us hired. And, and I got hired that way. My mother actually eventually ended up hiring Don Rogers' son. And, and, it, <laughs> it and that's, that's how it worked back then. So at that early point in your career, you said you were a, like a technician. How soon did that did your responsibilities evolve into something else? Well, uh, my my first like keep in mind my first day on the job was literally cleaning film and and, and cleaning bins and I, I I didn't know the first thing about sound and then I was very fortunate then to be put into a room where I became a machine room operator where I you know we were all back analog then so I hung tracks of thirty five millimeter film all around the room. And I reported to the recordist who then kind of ran the machine room. We worked for the mixers. And as time went on, you know, back then, if you were lucky, you, you would eventually move up the food chain in terms of a sound. You'd become a machine room operator, then a recordist. And if you were lucky, either a Foley mixer, ADR mixer, or a re-recording mixer. I tried ADR mixing and I couldn't handle that. I got like fired after two days. <laughs> Foley mixing was fun, but the real challenge for me was to become a re-recording mixer. In 1981, I got my first opportunity to, to begin mixing, and it was on a film called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. That was a disaster, but it turned out okay. Let me stop you there, because what I think we should do for, for listeners is, is define some of these terms, if, we can, if, you, if you can help me do that, because something like ADR, or Foley Artists, or all of those things, but also just more broadly, there are people I think generally know about sound editors and sound mixers. Mm -hmm. So... Where under those do things like ADR and sound re-recording, you know, things like this fall? And, and what are the distinctions? Right. Well, the sound mixing is the process to which all the elements of a motion picture come together. Dialogue, music, and sound effects. Okay. When I talk about dialogue, it's usually a combination of the track they record on production. And then what's called ADR, which is Automated Dialogue Replacement. And let's just say you're shooting a film like Hacksaw Ridge and you're on the battle scene and, you know, all of the prop grenades and, and guns and, and people running around are happening and the dialogue track gets obscured. We bring the actors into a stage where we run them the film, they have a microphone in front of them and they know what their lines are and they re-record the lines so that we can understand them. Then those lines are brought back to the mixing stage where the mixer has all of those lines and the other characters' lines for, for the entire film. Along with that, we have the music for the film, uh, the score, and the score is broken down into food groups. We have the orchestra, percussion, synth, choir, brass, woodwinds, everything at our fingertips. And then on the sound effects side of the board, 
we have every single sound that happens in a movie. In Hacksaw Ridge, it would be every gunshot, every ricochet, every whiz-by, every explosion, every cannon fire. Every single footstep is on a fader so that we have independent control over all of it. Foley is, a, is an art form also that has Foley artists on a stage watching the film and recreating Virtually every single footstep in the film is recreated because the microphones don't pick up the feet, so we have to record those. And then every prop, like body falls, they, they enhance chin socks. They, they do, the Foley guys do an amazing job. They're some of the most talented artists in the world. And all of that coalesces into a mixing console where we sit there, much like a cinematographer racks focus on a scene to direct the audience as to what they should be seeing we do the exact same thing through the use of sound. And so that's the sound mixing team. Right. What's the sound editing team? The sound editorial team, listen, they're some of the most talented sound artists in the world, these guys. If you think of a film like Jurassic Park and the dinosaurs trampling around Jurassic Park, if you believed when they roared that they roared, if you believed that an 18-wheeler transformed into a 40-foot-tall autonomous robot <laughs> named Optimus Prime, or if you believe that Andrew Garfield actually ran around a battlefield with people firing and shooting at him and explosions happening, then you begin to understand what sound editing is. I think a, a better term for that might be sound effects design. These are the artists that create sounds, that things that don't exist. You know, dinosaurs don't exist anymore, so where do you come up with a dinosaur roar? You know, very clever guys do that. A transformer transforming or the sound of a battlefield. Those are all sonic landscapes that don't even exist, and they have to be carefully stitched together by the sound editorial So in team. terms of the chronology of how this all comes together, the sound editorial team has to do what they do first in order for the sound mixing team to have at their disposal all of the elements they need? Right. The sound editorial team and sound designers are usually on the film months before we get involved. Okay. And what they're doing is they're recording sounds, they're designing sounds, they're taking all the dialogue tracks, whether they're the original production track or the re-recorded ADR tracks, and they are editing them into sync, cleaning them all up, making sure that it's all going to play great. They're the guys who bring all of the elements to us. And then once it's in our hands, then we're the guys who shape the focus of the entire project, you know, along with them and the director and the film editor. Everybody has input as to how uh, the mix goes. And so you were always on the sound mixing trajectory or was there ever a time when you were on the sound editorial team? No, I never I never got into the sound editorial thing. I've actually been doing a little bit of that lately because really? because the crafts are blending a little bit and I actually find it kind of fun and rewarding. But like I said, I have a lot of respect for all of the men and women sound editors who contribute to our craft, they're, they're phenomenal artists. Over the course of your career, you said you started out by going to the Samuel Goldwyn Studios, but where where have you worked over the years? And also, just generally, do sound editorial or mixing folks tend to work for a specific studio, or are they guns for hire where maybe if there's not a project in, in the works at any given moment, you don't go somewhere? It's a bit of a combination of all, all of that. I started at Samuel Goldwyn Studios in 78 and worked there until right around 1989. You know, George Lucas decided to build a facility down south called Skywalker South, and he collected a very select few sound mixers to, to run that facility, and I was fortunate enough to be one of them. Where down south? Uh, it was at Lantan over in Santa Monica. Wow, okay. And then after a couple of years, George decided to get out of the sound business, and so... 
I went and uh, accepted a position over at Sony Pictures, where I was and started in 1993 and worked up till about 2007. And then uh, right around 2007, I decided to go freelance. Right around that same time is about the time that, you know, back in the, the old days, and, and I'm talking about not even that old, like yeah. the 80s and 90s, yeah. mixing teams worked at studios in rooms and there were crews. And everybody kind of stayed together. Mm-hmm. But starting around the mid-2000s, that began to break up a bunch and it became more of an independent world. So even though I may work at Sony, I may get a call from Warner Brothers saying, hey, we have a director here doing a Warner Brothers film that you've worked with in the past. Would you mind coming over here and doing it? And it's, of course, absolutely. Because you're not beholden to Sony. Well, no, I don't personally have a contract with Sony. Some mixers do have contracts with their facilities. But generally speaking, the facility will let you go to wherever your client is so that you can maintain that relationship. You mentioned the the awesome projects that you worked on at Goldwyn as a as a more of a technician but as your responsibilities grew and you were now I guess a full-fledged sound mixer yourself what was the sort of the breakthrough for you the big first you know project or two that that you put you on the map you know my first mixing experience was absolutely horrendous (laughs) it was on a film called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid Back in that time, there was no apprenticeship to be a mixer. I left my recording job on a Friday and started being a mixer on a Monday. To anybody who hasn't sat at a mixing console before, this is in the analog days when there was no computer automation to help you do what you do. And you literally had to mix a film real time while it's running. What does that mean? So Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid starts out with a a car skidding down a muddy dirt road with thunder and lightning and all sorts of crazy sounds going on. And so I looked at the the two mixers I was working with, which were Bill Varney and Steve Maslow, two guys that had just come off winning Oscars for Empire Strikes Back and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And here I am, I'm 23 years old, first movie I've ever worked on as a mixer, and I've got... Steve Martin and Carl Reiner sitting right behind me. And I said to Bill, what do I do? He said, put all the faders on minus 10. So I, I put all the faders on minus 10 and they pushed the forward button. And what came out of the speaker system was the most loudest, distorted, <laughs> tearing, ripping sound. It was worse than an aircraft carrier landing over your head. And, and, I, and I looked at Bill and he's yelling at me and, and I can't hear what he's saying. And I lean into him a little bit. And I said, what? And he looks at me and he goes, you're playing everything too loud. <laughs> and I went, OK, should I put it on minus 10? And they just said, just lower it. So I pulled all the faders down. I looked in the back. Steve Martin, his hair was sticking straight up on his head. <laughs> Carl Reiner, just his hands were on his cheeks like, what the heck did I just see? And poor Bud Mullen, who was the picture editor, who was the guy who edited all the I Love Lucy's, looked like he was having a coronary. And I, and I got to tell you, that was my first mixing experience. And, and I don't even know how I survived it. So how, just a year or two after that, do you end up getting a phone call saying you're an Oscar nominee for, for sound mixing for Terms of Endearment? Well, my very next project after Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid was Poltergeist. And to say I was a little intimidated is an understatement. Poltergeist was directed by Toby Hooper, but literally Steven Spielberg ran the entire project. So here I am, still 23 years old, sitting in the chair with Steven Spielberg, directing us on how to do Poltergeist. Somehow I survived that mix as well. And then, then, then after that, went on to do Terms of Endearment, which was a completely different project. That was my first time I got to work with Jim Brooks. It was much less effects heavy. And these projects I'm talking to you about, I was an effects mixer, so I was mixing all of the sound effects. 
And terms of endearment was much less complicated. So I actually was able to breathe while I was mixing that show. And then after that, after we mixed that show, I was in uh, doing some Foley recording. And all of a sudden, it was the morning of the Oscar nominations. Remember, back then, we didn't have computers. We didn't have internet. The only way that you could find out if you got nominated is if somebody walked in the door and told you. And uh, somebody knocked on the door of the Foley stage and said, hey, congratulations. And I said, for what? And he goes, you just got nominated for an Oscar. And I said, are you kidding? I was shocked. No, I had no idea. Right. I had no idea. I couldn't focus on anything I was doing the rest of the day. I would imagine not. That's a pretty, pretty awesome thing. And the thing that, just as an aside, because obviously we're going to talk about the fact that there have been 21 nominations now. Several of these are instances where your nomination ended up losing to a a nomination for a movie that ended up winning Best Picture, because I think for reasons we'll discuss, it's it's sometimes treated as a coattail category. So here you are with this one, your nomination number one, your movie ends up winning the Best Picture Oscar, and yet the, the sound in this case you know, was not recognized. So, I mean, it's just freak thing number one of many that we'll, we'll cover. But, I mean, just for the record, I believe that over the years, the Best Picture nominees that have been nominated opposite you that have won in the sound mixing category then, and then go on to win Best Picture, Amadeus, Platoon, Dances with Wolves, The English Patient, Titanic, Chicago. So, you know, over the next few years, you accumulated in very short order. In fact, in, in consecutive years, after Terms of Endearment, the next year, nomination for Dune, the next year, nomination for Silverado, the next year, nomination for Top Gun. I want to focus on on Top Gun for a second because was that the beginning of the collaboration with Tony Scott? Right. Top Gun was the first opportunity I had to work with Tony Scott. He was a relatively unknown guy at that time. He was a commercial director and listen, uh, I was, I think I was 26 years old when I mixed Top Gun. It was a very challenging film for me, yet an incredibly rewarding film for me. I worked with two very talented guys, Don Mitchell and Rick Klein on that. That was my first collaboration with Tony Scott. And I have to say, I don't think any other filmmaker had more influence over my career than Tony Scott. Did. Why is that? Tony Scott, as much as I thought I knew about what I did, Tony Scott taught me and pushed me to learn more about what I did. In other words, anytime I worked on a Tony movie, and I did a lot of them, I did almost every one of Tony's movies. I did every movie I was available to do for him, which was most of them, including his last film. We would take apart a scene, and every time we cut to a new shot, Tony would talk about what's the most important thing here. You know, on Top Gun, every time we cut to another jet, he'd want an explosion on the cut so that we exploded into that scene. It, but then, but immediately after that explosion, what was the most important thing was the afterburner sound. And right after that, it was the whistle sound. So he would always be forcing us to get as much emotion out of each scene as he could. And then after he would go through the jet sounds with me, then he'd go over to Rick Klein and he'd have the score in front of him and do the exact same thing. In other words, is it an emotional moment? Let's raise the strings. If it's not, and it's a moment where he wants some energy, let's raise the percussion. And, and then he would go, after did all that, and he'd you know, pump me up, and he'd pump the music up. Then he'd go to Don Mitchell and say, all right, Don, now I can't hear the dialogue, so let's pump <laughs> up the dialogue. And that's, that's, that's how Tony was. He was an amazing filmmaker. And not many filmmakers are, are that hands-on with sound. Is it just that they're not as interested or familiar with how it all works? Tony was a a perfectionist, okay, and he didn't understand how we did what we did. He just knew what the result he wanted was. So he would sit literally right next to me on every single movie, and we would do it. We would work on 
10 seconds of the film at a time, maybe sometimes five seconds of the film, wow. and go over it and over it and over it until he got it exactly the way he wanted it. And he was obviously, you know, that could be very taxing, but Tony was the sweetest, kindest, most generous human being in terms of not just a filmmaker, but in, in, that I've ever met in my life. Amazing. He was a true gift uh, to us all, and I, I miss him dearly. Well, let me ask you about the significance of Oscar nom number five, which was for Black Rain. This was, I believe, the first of your many collaborations as a partner in the sound room with Greg P. Russell. You guys ended up working together for 12 years, and I think uh, those films that you worked on over that period accounted for 12 of your nominations, so it was obviously a very fruitful and, and productive collaboration. I just wonder, how did you guys first cross paths and end up working together? Well, I believe, and Greg will know this better than I, I believe on Black Rain, I'm not exactly why Greg got involved in that because I was working with Don Mitchell and Rick Klein and I, apparently either Rick Klein wasn't available or perhaps somebody requested Greg. Greg was mixing music at that time and that was one of our first collaborations together. And listen, Greg is a phenomenal mixer. He's a wonderful guy. You know him, you've met him. Greg and I developed the shorthand over the years. We, we pushed each other harder than anybody could push another guy, but in a good, positive way, trying to make ourselves better. Every film we did, we'd go see it in the movie theater and say, we should have done this, we could have done this. We, 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 you know, we also endured a lot of, you know, we worked with Michael Bay on a lot of his yeah, films. Yeah. We worked with Billy Friedkin on, on several of his films. We, we were in the trenches together for a long time. I have the utmost respect for Greg, and I think he's one of the finest re-recording mixers I've ever worked with in my life. And I, and I do I feel like I owe a, a great debt of gratitude to him, A, for putting up with me, and B, for being you know, so great. And I know he feels the same way, and, and I guess that in, it's, it's another thing that must make your relationship, which is now no longer in, in sound partnership, but just generally that must make it unique is the fact that he's probably about the closest that anyone can come to understanding the experience that you've had with, I think Greg has now been nominated 17 times and is still, you know, awaiting uh, win number one. So it's a, that, that element must have, you know, you guys went to a lot of Oscars together, right? We did, and we still are. Yes. And listen, I, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that Greg and I could, could, uh, could do another film again oh, in that the would future. Be great. I, I think it'd be great. I don't think anybody, anybody could have that perspective of sitting in that, in that Dolby Theater with a combined 38 Oscar nominations and have the same emotional experience that Greg and I will end up having on, on Oscar night. That's amazing. Well, let's talk about the fact that over these years, you're racking up all these nominations, you're, you're getting dressed up, you're taking your wife to the Oscars, and then having to sit there and hear some other film called. At which of these ceremonies over the years did you feel going into it that you had your best shot? And... At what number nomination did you start to say, like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that we had my first best shot was in 1986 for Top Gun. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a movie that just broke sound barriers, sound barriers. It broke all <laughs> sorts of barriers, actually. I think it was just some of the, you know, some of the best work, certainly that I'd ever done. But it was one of the coolest sounding movies yeah. that I'd ever heard at that point. And I really thought it stood out. You know, we lost to Platoon that year, which, you know, I don't want to take anything away from them. That was a great movie, but that was also up for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all Best Director, it was up for, it was all, you know, all part of that. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't begrudge the fact that we lost, but I did think we had the best shot that sure. year. And then I thought the next time after that, believe it or not, I was going to fast forward to 2007 for Transformers. You know, Transformers was an incredible experience. We got to work with these two amazing sound designers, Ethan Vanderen and Eric Adol, that had created some sounds that we'd never heard before. We'd never heard the sound of a 18-wheeler transforming into a, a robot. And, and that was kind of groundbreaking at the time. Now we hear it all the time right, and everything, right, right. but they, they originated that. And that was also the last of the collaborations that you, you had with Gret. Exactly. Right. I know that at when we spoke around the time of Transformers, that was the last time I got to interview. So about a decade ago, you were saying, I, I think that you had felt pretty optimistic about the chances for Spider-Man as well, right? Yeah, we did. The thing is, is that Spider-Man is a comic book movie. Mm -hmm. And I know that now I know in yeah. hindsight, back then I was hopeful, but right. you know, it's difficult to win that category unless it's groundbreaking. And by groundbreaking, I mean the original Star Wars, Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. something that just is like so off the chart, cool and new that no one's ever seen it before sound wise. Otherwise, your best shot is if you're up for best picture, best right. director, best actor. Et Which in your case, you've been for... Terms of Endearment, and then the second time is now for Hacksaw Ridge, right? Uh, well, actually, I think A Few Good Men was also up for Best Picture. But the the reality is, is you've got two movies that are so pedestrian sound-wise, right. A Few Good Men and Terms, Terms of Endearment. They're, they're great films yes. and they're great soundtracks, right. but they were dialogue-focused. Right. And I think we lost to the right stuff, maybe, on Terms of Endearment. And That's I don't right. know what we lost to on A Few Good Men. Something great, uh, I'm sure. We lost to The Last of the Mohicans. Well, there you go. There and you that go. was a great sound yeah, job yeah, as well, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I, I, like I said, I don't begrudge the fact that I've lost to any of these films because right, they're right, all right. great. Right. It's just a, it's, it's such a crapshoot when you get to who who's going to win. You well, know? I think it's... And, and, and let's say that so that we can talk about these others going forward, that this is purely about about your work we're not evaluating the work that you were up against so this way we can speak freely about about just what what your experience was and i know that you know i think probably the the interest in your experience really surged after oscar nom and 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 you know lost number 18 which is when you came into sole possession of this record of of most times being nominated without a win and so Let's talk about a few of the close calls over the years, just because I think a listener will hear this and just, you know, really empathize with how how this all has kind of shaken out in some cases. I guess you shared five of these nominations with Donald Mitchell, who you mentioned. Right. Then the first year you two worked apart, what happened? Well, that wasn't a, a great thing that happened there. Um, <laughs> first of all, in my ever increasing desire to become more involved in the storytelling process, I felt that as a sound effects mixer, uh, I saw that the dialogue mixer, you know, that was kind of taking a turn in a more direction of, uh, of being able to be more in control of the storytelling process. And so that was my, my goal. And so just about the time that I did my last movie with Don Mitchell, I went to go become a dialogue mixer. And then they had to replace me with a wonderful mixer by the name of Greg Rudloff, who came in to mix the next film that I didn't mix because I left, which was Glory. Yeah. And of course, that film went on to win an Academy <laughs> Award for Best Sound. So listen, there's been a lot of near misses well, in my we're career. We're going to cover a couple more. So the year after that, you'd go to do a favor for a friend who wanted you to help, I guess, with a student film. I can tell you what that was. Yeah. That was I mixed Rob Reiner's movies at that time. Mm -hmm. 
And Rob Reiner's brother, Lucas Reiner, did a film called The Spirit of 76. And I got the call from Skywalker because he's, he's a Northern California, it was a Northern California uh, project. And so I got the gig to go up there and for six weeks mix this film that I think went direct to video at Francis Ford Coppola's winery up in Napa. He has a, a mixing stage. Yeah. And I'm about two weeks into the project and I get a call from a guy named Bill Schlegel who was running a place called International Sound at the time. He said, we, we need you down here. We need you to work on this film called Dances with Wolves. <laughs> we need an effects mixer badly and can you please come down and do it? And you know, I called my brother Dan O'Connell who was doing the Foley at the time and I said, Dan, what, what should I do? And he says, get your, get your tail down here, dude. This is the best movie I've ever worked on. I'm like, oh my God. And then, so I went back in and I just struggled with it and I didn't know quite how to handle with it, how to deal with it. And then I thought to myself, I I can't, I can't feel good about myself by dumping on Lucas Reiner and, and going down and working on this film, no matter how great of an opportunity it might've been. So I stuck with the project up in Napa, and of course, Dances with Wolves went on to win an Oscar. I did recommend a guy in my stead named Greg Watkins, who I'm very happy for him. He did a great <laughs> job. So. Well, you did a very honorable thing there. And I guess, you know, fast forwarding to, to 2007 and where, you know, we just mentioned that was Transformers, the last of your collaborations with Greg. Over the decades since then, how has your career and the sound business changed? Well, okay, so... Uh, right around 2007, I had been working on, you know, Tony Scott movie, Jerry Bruckheimer movie, Michael Bay movie, Billy Friedkin movie, just one action adventure, big movie after another. And, and those films take their toll on you. And I, and I had been pretty much run into the ground by, by 2007. And I was ready for a change mm-hmm. because I couldn't keep up with the pace, you know. Yeah. The hours were, were killing me. I had a new family that I had just started. And, and I kind of had to, had to jump off the hamster wheel for a little while and try to work on some films that were less all in. Yeah. In other words, they, they didn't take up all of my time. Yeah. You know, those, those movies, you know, can tend to be pressure cookers on, on your brain. You got a lot of high profile folks you're working with. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just kind of needed some time away from it all. And that was when Greg and I stopped working together. I stopped working at Sony and became kind of an independent mm-hmm. mixer for a while. And then I went from kind of from project to project. Right around the same time, the economy tanked yes. and budgets shrank. All the directors that I was used to working with weren't getting projects mm-hmm. anymore. And pretty soon I was like, oh, oh my God, what, what has happened to our business? Mm-hmm. This is insane, you know? And then so it, was a while, it took a while to kind of get back on track. I was very fortunate two and a half years ago, Tom McCarthy, who is now running Sony's sound department, mm-hmm gave me a call when he had heard that the company that I was working for called Tadeo Sandalux went chapter 11. Mm-hmm. On the very same day, he gave me a call and said, I'd like for you to come back at Sony. And it was like the worst day, best day yeah. of my entire life. I'm so happy to be back at Sony. I've spent so many years of my life there. Everybody that I work with there is like a family yeah. to me. And it's better now than it was before yeah. because whatever happened to me in the past with all those shows and it all building up, it's sort of like flushed out of my yeah, system yeah. now. And I have better control over everything and I'm just in a better place with my mind body and spirit now that's great that's great well I want to ask you one last question before we focus on 2016 which you had just a phenomenal 2016 beyond only Hacksaw Ridge but the night that you were nominated the last time pre-Hacksaw Ridge which again was nine years ago for Transformers what else was going on at that time well that was a pretty difficult time for me 
in November of that year, my mother, Skippy, had been diagnosed with brain cancer. You know, she was always a huge part of my life and a part of my career. She um, took such great pleasure in it. And she came to many. I always took her to the Oscar luncheon and I, and I took her, you know, several times to the awards. It was such a big part of my life. And my mom was basically dying of brain cancer during that time. And it was a very difficult time for me. When you were a kid, hadn't you had a conversation with her about the Oscars? Yes. When I was 20 and I started at the studio, after a few months, I, I came home and I said to her, I said, Ma, this is the greatest thing ever. How, do, how can I ever thank you? You know, And you know, she was this feisty Irish gal. She thought about it for a minute and she, she, she kind of sat back and she said, well, I'll tell you how you can thank me. You go work hard. You work really hard. And then someday you can go win yourself an Oscar and you can thank me in front of the whole world. <laughs> and I looked and I laughed at her. You know, I was 20 years old. I was cleaning film and I was like, sure, mom, I'll do that. <laughs> and then, you know, who'd have known I would actually that would have become my path, you know. And through all the years that I was nominated, she took such great pleasure in all of that. And then that night at the Oscars, she was in the hospital, you know, basically dying. And I knew she would have wanted me to go. So I went. And just after we lost, I waited till the uh, winner made their acceptance speech. I got up from the theater and I got in the car and drove to the hospital. And she died about 45 minutes later in my arms. Wow. The nurses watching the Oscars behind us on the on the screen. And it was just a sad time for me. Mm. Yeah, it was very difficult. And then, you know, on the polar opposite of, of emotional experiences here after this nine year span since that nomination, not that you haven't been doing great work in those years since, but here nine years later with Hacksaw Ridge, which comes on the heels of three other 2016 movies, Passengers, Ben-Hur, and Central Intelligence. So you were busy. This one now gets nominated. This was your third collaboration with Mel Gibson after 2004's The Passion of the Christ and 2006's Apocalypto. What's Mel like to work with and how has he changed over those many years that you've dealt with him? I'd have to say Mel's changed a lot. We both have kind of. We both sort of went through a, some you know rough times there. When I worked with Mel on The Passion of the Christ, I mean, it was, it was frantic. That movie was under such scrutiny. Mel was taking calls from the Vatican while we were trying to mix the film and taking calls from religious leaders about the content of what that film was going to be. And it put a lot of stress on us on the mix. And then a couple of years later, we roll, roll into Apocalypto. And of course, that's when Mel had his unfortunate experience that happened in Malibu. Mm -hmm. And because of that experience, we couldn't mix the film on the Sony lot. We were asked to leave. Really? So we had to go mix Apocalypto at another facility. And Mel at that time, you know, was a bit bumpy. You know, he was dealing with a lot of emotions and a lot of challenges in his own personal life at that time. But he's always the consummate gentleman to us. I, I could just see in, in his character that he was going through a lot. And then, you know, and then 10 years later, we hook up on uh, Hacksaw Ridge and I see this Mel that is calm, cool, collected, very approachable, just totally together. And uh, maybe a little humbled by the whole thing. Absolutely. You know, that happens to the best of us, yeah. you know. And I think Mel was taught a very valuable lesson. And, and I think he learned a very valuable mm -hmm. lesson from it. You know, what a lot of people don't know about Mel is that he's not the type of guy that that broadcasts that he's getting better or that he's done a lot of work to get better. And I know that he has single-handedly reached out to many individuals that have you know, gone off track and offered to help them mm -hmm. out and does it privately. I think he just does it because it's in his heart yeah. to do it. Where does he compare to somebody like Tony Scott as far as his 
knowledge about and interest in sound-related work? Well, Tony Scott was a micromanager of the entire soundtrack. He would sit next to me, and like I said, Tony, was, it, was, it was one of the most difficult mixes I'd mm-hmm. had because it was completely micromanaged, yeah. yet one of the most rewarding because Tony was like an amazing individual. Mm-hmm. Mel is just the opposite of that. He's a very emotional director, and he knows exactly what he wants to get out of a scene, but he'll sit there and let us, the sound team, work it all through, mm-hmm. get get relative balances and get it all in shape. And then we play it for him. And he goes, yeah, guys, I think that's great. I think that's really great. But, you know, after that flamethrower, you know, fires out of the uh, gun there, he goes, uh, would you mind turning up the heat on the guys that are getting, you know, cooked there? And we go, yeah, yeah, well, of course, <laughs> you know. It's like he's a very emotional yeah. director and he knows what emotion he wants to get out of each individual scene. Now, our war movies, which you've done a few of, I guess you could certainly call Pearl Harbor one of those. And... Are those more challenging to mix than other kinds of movies? I have to say yes. When you're dealing with a film like a war film like Hacksaw Ridge, what I don't think a lot of people know is that those entire battle scenes are completely stitched together and choreographed from scratch by the sound team. None of the sound you're hearing is real. Mm-hmm. You know, the actors are running around a, a giant, for lack of a better term, like a football mm-hmm. field made to look like yeah. a battlefield with prop explosions going off, with prop guns going off, with no missile fire coming in, without, <laughs> you know, the naval cannons that were firing at them were visual effects. So none of it's real. The sound is what makes you believe it's mm-hmm. real. And when you when you have a battle film, you know, especially one as brutal as Hacksaw Ridge was, you have to be correct in the, the intensity of the battle. That's that was important to Mel. And throughout those battle scenes, you have to you, there's a story being told and you have to understand what that story is. So as much as those explosions that are going off, you have to make sure we understand every line of dialogue mm-hmm. as well. Some of which you also have to get re-recorded, right? A lot of the oh, dialogue, every, almost everything. During right? the battle scenes, yeah, ninety-five yeah, percent of the battle scenes were all were all none of it was recorded yeah. on production. And the production mixer did a great job. It's just the fact that while the actors were talking, yeah. there were prop guns and explosions going off that sound more like cap guns and firecrackers. Right. So they were unable. We were unable to use those tracks. Sure. You know, I know Mel actually contributed a, a sound effect to this movie as well, right? You told me about this, right? Yeah, there was a scene in the movie right after the first battle where Andrew Garfield and Luke Bracey are hunkered down in a foxhole and they're having their bonding moment when all of a sudden they're surprised by a Japanese soldier who pops his head up over the berm. And the idea was to to scare the heck out of the audience and and we couldn't find the right sound in music or in sound effects. And uh, we were kind of struggling with the, you know, getting exactly what Mel was looking for. And so Mel said, hey, do you mind if I give it a shot? And we said, sure. So we handed him a microphone and we ran him the scene. And just as the Japanese soldier popped his head up, Mel leans into the microphone and goes, (laughs) we took that sound. We busted into all 56 speakers in the room. And trust me, when I played that for the first time, it scared the crap out of all of us too. It was, it was insane. I know that many craftsmen across the areas of the industry, whether it's costume or film editing, or in in your case, sound, many say that if they've done their job well, you don't, you shouldn't notice it. Mm -hmm. However, I think there's, there's always, there are always exceptions to every rule. And an example for Hacksaw Ridge would be what happened at a LA screening of the movie that got you some interesting feedback from people who would certainly be qualified to give it about the sound in a situation like the one in Hacksaw Ridge. Can you share 
what the maybe the most meaningful feedback was that you received. Uh, the most meaningful feedback that we got was, you know, the nickname for this battle was the Typhoon of Steel because these soldiers were being pelted with artillery day and night. It was the bloodiest battle of the Pacific. That's why Mel shot it the way he did. That's why it was as brutal as it was to demonstrate this pacifist who ran into the face of, of that without a gun. We ran the film for some veterans, and afterwards they came up and they would talk to us and talk to Mel, and they said that the battle sequences were amazing visually, and they said there was one sound in the movie that triggered their PTSD, and that was the sound of the whizzing, cracking bullets flying over their head. And our sound designer, Rob McKenzie, went to great lengths to get this really period-correct, authentic sound of these bullets whizzing over your head. And because there's so much of a battle in Hacksaw, these things are flying all over the theater all the time. This guy said it took him right back to the battlefield like nothing has ever taken him back. It wasn't the visuals, it was that sound. That's the power of, of sound. How'd you get the news that you'd received Oscar nom number 21? And did this one mean anything different to you than, than the 20 before it? Actually, yes, I was running on the treadmill with my earbuds in listening to my playlist. I had the uh, news on, which was running the Oscar nominations, and I couldn't hear it, but all of a sudden the card came yes. up that had my name on it. And all of a sudden, if you ever imagine somebody just stumbling off of a <laughs> of treadmill that's going 100 miles an hour, and I just freaked out, ran down the hall, <laughs> woke up the family. It was an amazing moment. How it's different for me this year is that I think... I've never been more appreciative, humbled, and just overall excited about the fact that I've been nominated. You know, I, I don't want to say I took it for granted in the past, but I certainly don't take it for granted anymore. It's a, it's a very unique distinction, and I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled. And, and like I said, I'm humbled by it, the, the fact that after 10 years, um, I've had this opportunity to be recognized again. I'm yeah. very taken back by That's it, actually. That's great. Now, in a, in a constructive way, not in a critical way, I wonder if we can just try to diagnose what might be at the, at the root of this long wait that you've had to endure. Because, and I will say this, and then you can react however you want or, or not, but it seems to me like the voting system is a little broken in the sense that it makes perfect sense that the people who are in a branch pick the nominees in the category or categories that are relevant to that area of expertise. So for listeners, the Academy's broken into like 17 branches. One of them, for instance, is the sound branch. The sound branch solely picks the nominees for best sound editing and best sound mixing. That makes sense. Sound people know what good sound is. And yet somehow, for whatever reason, throughout the history of the Academy, there has been this idea that everyone then suddenly becomes qualified to pick the winner in every category. They weren't qualified to pick the nominees, but now they're deemed, you know, we open it up to everyone. Mm -hmm. And as a result, as you know, as a former governor of the academy and, and a member and someone who does this, that means that the vast majority of people who are picking winners in any area are not practitioners of that area. Even actors are only like one-sixth of the academy. So that means five-sixths of the people that are picking the best acting winners you know, are not actors. So, it, and, and it's even a bigger disparity with sound. Do you think the fact that you've got screenwriters and hairstylists and cinematographers picking the winners, essentially outnumbering the sound branch in picking the winners of the sound categories, does that change the results? 
In a word, I do believe it does change the results. Eleven years ago, when I was first on the Board of Governors at the Academy, I went to my very first Board of Governor meeting, which can be very intimidating, Mm -hmm. by the way. One of the items that I asked to be put on the agenda was to talk about this, Mm -hmm. okay? When you become a new member of the Academy, you get a little pamphlet. I believe it was called Notes on Voting or something, and it would talk a little bit about each branch. And it would say, I'm paraphrasing, yeah, yeah. it would say something like, you know, for, for sound, it isn't about the loudest movie. For costumes, it's not just about a period movie. For editing, it's not just about the number of edits. And it, kind of trying to educate mm-hmm. folks a little bit. And so my suggestion was, why don't we take that pamphlet and turn it into a modern day video DVD on mm-hmm. every single branch and we'll send it out to the entire academy mm-hmm. so that each member could look up about the other branches and know what they're about because to be honest with you I don't understand what goes into the cinematography sure. and the set decoration and the art decoration I, I, I that's not my world and you get to vote for all of them and I do right yeah. and 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 the thing is is that at that point I I was literally laughed off the board it was their comments I heard was, hey, if people are in the academy and they don't know what the other branches are doing, they don't belong in the academy. It's someone else. Here, here. Yeah, let's get this guy out of here. Boom. It was done. Gavel came down. And that was the end of that conversation. Well, isn't that insane, though? Because I know, you know that I do, and I will say for the record, you are not someone who I've ever done this with, but every year I do these, what we call the brutally honest Oscar ballots, right. where we ask academy members, we grant them anonymity, and then we say, so that people can understand the thought process, how they arrive at their picks, talk us through your ballot. And I'm doing a handful of these every year. I don't think more than one person a year who's outside of the sound branch has ever been able to explain to me the distinction between sound editing and sound mixing. And I asked them, so what do they end up doing? They end up voting for the movie that they like the most in that category. Exactly. Right? And so now when you're doing Michael Bay movies, which probably are the most complex when it comes to sound and would be the choice of the sound branch if the sound branch could be the only ones picking that those those categories. Instead, most of these Academy members hold their nose up to a movie like that because they say there's no other category in which I I supported this movie. Why would I vote for a Michael Bay movie? It's not a acclaimed movie, right? Well, listen, to Dawn Hudson's credit, yeah. she heard about my suggestion nine years earlier mm-hmm. or 11 years earlier and has since then put a whole team in place to try to put together these DVD-type videos so that everyone can understand the process. I do agree with you that even that will not change it, and and that I do think that we could have a better system in place so that the end result is perhaps a little bit more reflective of perhaps the sound community or the cinematography community or the set decorators community rather than the entire academy. Yeah, I would just ask the academy as I do every year, and I encourage any listener who's listening to this to do the same. If you run into Don Hudson or Cheryl Boone Isaacs or anybody from the academy, just ask, is there any possible reasonable explanation for why visual effects artists should be picking acting awards and directors should be picking, you know, hairstyling awards and on and on and on. It's not to say that they aren't expert in their own areas, but it makes no sense. And when, let's say the sound branch again, maybe accounts for three or 4% of the entire academy, and yet that means 96% of the people that are picking its winners have no idea what they're, or minimal, minimal idea what they're talking about. Maybe some directors like Tony Scott, when he was alive, 
had an idea what they were talking about. But it just seems indefensible to me, and I have yet to hear from them a, a good explanation. Aside from, you know, the only explanation is that it's hard to take away something from someone that they've long had the right to do, which, so in this case, voters like getting to vote in all these areas. It's kind of cool, but it just doesn't make sense. Right, but uh, here's, here's, here's what I'll say to that, is that I believe that since Don and Cheryl have taken over the reins of the Academy, I've never seen so many moves in a positive direction mm-hmm. and trying to bring the Academy up to, up to date. You know, uh, it was kind of the old boys club for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And, and I do believe that these issues can be addressed and, and, and they will address them eventually, whether it's through education or if it's through modification of the rules, which I believe is I'd be a, a proponent of yeah. that. Well, final question to end on, a, on an upbeat note here. Is there a lesson in your story and all that you've been through with all of this over the years that others could take away from this? And if and when you finally win, whether it's this year or, you know, soon, I have no doubt it will happen. How do you imagine that will will feel and what will you want to say? I, I'm pretty sure you must have a drawer full of past acceptance speeches somewhere. So, you know, just again, is there a lesson and and what will that moment be like when it happens? If there is any one lesson in this, I think it would be to anybody who had a dream to not ever to give up on their dream. When I started being nominated for Oscars, I was a single guy living in my apartment, and now I'm a married guy with two children. And I think the lesson to my children is don't ever give up on your dream. And no matter how much adversity you face, you just keep on on trying. And even if I don't ever win, and I'm going to say that, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the recognition that I've had, and I feel it's an honor to be nominated as many times as I have. I've had the pleasure of working with some of the greatest filmmakers in the business. I believe a lot of my success is because all of the filmmakers, the picture editors, the sound editors, the men and women who do the, the, are in the trenches with me every day work so hard and, and it's because of their efforts that I've gotten to where I am. So I'm very grateful for that. And the lesson is don't ever give up on your dream. Yeah. And listen, if I ever want, I, I hope I can come back and share however that is with you Please. Uh, if and when that happens, well, I, because I would love to. I, I hope you will. I'm so glad to know you and nobody will be clapping harder when that happens, whether it's this year or, or in the future. So good luck and thank you for doing this. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. it. 